Is it ever okay to high five a child? <laughs> edition of Spin Cycle. You're going to have to. Wear this. That's you can play the. That's, lo- that's a real deep seed to plant for something we're not going to deal with for like until the very end of the show. Exactly. You play the, playing the long game with that one uh, for context. So get comfy if you want to uh, hear where that goes because you're going to have to sit out the whole hour. Uh, we are broadcasting as we do every week from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Always was. Always will be. Paytherent.net.au. Uh, I'm Jess Lilly in the studio with Crikey reporter Charlie Lewis, uh, who you heard in the background, and our elusive friend Najma Sambal from The Age is unfortunately unable to be with us again this week, but I swear to God I'm going to bring her in myself next week. <laughs> no, she's incredibly busy, but... Um, Uh, She's around and wishes she was here. Uh, For the next hour, we're going to attempt, of course, as we do every week, to make sense of the week's media shenanigans. And in about 10 minutes, we're going to be welcoming The Guardian's uh, social affairs editor and inequality. Yes. Reporter, editor. Full title, I believe. uh, Smooth. Uh, Luc-Henrique Gomez into the studio to talk to us about this always vital but I think increasingly urgent area of journalism um, that I find really interesting because it intersects so many parts of yeah, yeah. Um, of not just our lives, but media coverage, politics, economics, finance, um, housing, climate crisis. And yet there are areas of the newspaper that all deal with those things independently as though as, social yeah. inequality does not happen, <laughs> <laughs> particularly the property section, um, which I'm interested to even touch on. Uh, but first, um, very briefly, um, we were de- debating whether to even talk about this, but I think we probably should because it's been... Well, it's the big media story it's of, the, big, of the week. Yeah, the big media story of the week is, um, I think, um, last week we talked about the Hawthorne Football Club and, you know, mm-hmm. every other club was probably looking over, looking on them with some sort of relieved um, commiseration that they'd found themselves in such a kind of... Um, scandal, public PR nightmare, and Essendon said, hey, hold my beer, babe. Because <laughs> <laughs> Hold my holy water. Because <laughs> we're going to run right past you, run rings around you. Um, but I think um, for me, um, that, that story in itself, where it's gone, is just kind of a bit unnecessary. Um, and I never thought I'd say this, but one of the best pieces... I've read on it was um, AFL was on the afl.com.au website um, written by Damien Barrett, who is AFL Media's chief correspondent. Uh, and um, it's really focused less on the sort of tangential um, uh, culture wars stuff that seems to have really taken hold and, and mm-hmm. run from the story, but more on how... Uh, just the collapse within Essendon in terms of um, governance, yeah, just, yeah, yeah, and and the organisation. I mean, and it's really interesting. So, it's just the first couple of paragraphs. That, so, a mere seven and a half weeks have unfolded since David Barham set in motion out of nowhere a takeover of the Essendon Football Club. Having been a low-profile Brommers director for nearly seven years, Barham suddenly thrust himself into the lead role on Sunday, August fourteen, before his club's second-last match of another bad season. Uh, when he started action to roll the president, he got the head he wanted, Paul Brescia, by just one vote of fellow directors, Kevin Sheedy being that casting vote, which is important for this narrative. <laughs> and he has since rolled a coach, three other directors and two two CEOs, the second of those lasting a mere 30 hours. 
And it's really interesting, um, the story goes on, to kind of talk through each phase of those machinations. We probably should clarify for anyone who's not uh, been following it uh, that this concerns uh, Essendon Chief Executive Andrew Thorburn, who um, quit, yes. Who was the second CEO. Yes, the one who lasted 30 30 hours hours, uh, after (laughs) the Herald Sun um, reported uh, that... Well, various views that were held by the church, or at least were on the website of the church to which uh, Andrew Thorburn belongs. Well, actually, he's also is the chairman of. Um, uh, so that, that's right. That's just a little bit of. Uh, so that's the that that's the the bit that's got the media throffing, frothing, throffing, frothing. Mm-hmm. I needed to do my red leather, yellow leather before I came <laughs> on air this evening. Um, but I think this is more interesting. I think mm. it's kind of disappointing in a way that um, that a lot of corners of the media have been so quick to just turn it into a real divisive oh, yeah, culture yeah. war story to, um, I mean... I mean, we, we, we were talking about, about it earlier before, before we came on that... Um, it is very interesting to see that the, the, the loudest kind of um, hysteria that is coming out of this does come from the Herald Sun, which is the paper that revealed this information in the first place. So you see, see Andrew Bolt's um, typically restrained take that uh, the headline is Andrew Thorburn's exit proves that bigots think that Christians can go to hell. Um, and it's, it's, it's basically, yeah. Um, uh, well, I mean, and to be honest, like Josh Bernstein, who is a lawyer and usually mm. a bit of a darling of the of the lefty, come out and sort of say, you know what, he probably could take Essendon oh, for religious oh, yeah, discrimination. Yeah. And people jumped on him for that. And I just sort of think it's really disappointing to see the sure, way this sure. is playing out. I, I mean, a piece like the one that you describe, um, which is kind of goes into the actual material mechanics of what happened behind the scenes. I, I can't. Which is fascinating. Yeah, which is which is much more interesting, but it's also, it's also much harder. It takes longer. It, it requires um, investigation, experience, some some inside knowledge. Well, you're not necessarily going to click on it, are you? Well, not necessarily, not necessarily. And also, but it's much easier and quicker to to have some feelings. <laughs> I mean, that, that honestly is it. That's that's stuff that yeah. generates. And yeah. as you say, that's much clickier and easier. Uh, to produce and I think I mean and as you say it's like it's something that always comes up when this stuff happens when someone gets fired for something that is um look no one is obviously no no one in this room anyway would would uh defend anything that that church has to say on any of the publicly available sermons I don't think um but 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 the idea that you couldn't put forward that it's a bit of a slippery slope in some cases for these things to become the uh, metric, the one that I always think back to is is Israel Folau. Um and you could, if you were to say to anyone, it's actually kind of dangerous to set the precedent that someone's social media activity that's not related to their job is a reason for them to be fired. You know, you would be told that, well, I, I guess you don't care about trans kids. And it's like, let's know these are two separate issues that we're talking about right now. Mm. Um, and then it really did get on my nerves a little bit recently when Caitlin Moran, the, the indigenous player, uh, said some some less than flattering things about the Queen after she died, which I do have. I have no issue with her views on that at all. But people were acting the same people who would spend a year saying that not only could, but could an employer fire you for something that you said on social media, but they should be able to do that. They were shocked beyond all reason that this even could happen. And there was no idea that maybe the toothpaste came out of the tube because you set that standard. It's, it's just, it's, it's, I mean, maybe it's that analogy before. You can't get the toothpaste back in the tube is is the, is the phrase. (laughs) 
Thank you for explaining that to me, Charlie. <laughs> it's, it's just, you, but, but yeah, the, 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 there are certain settings that you put in place when you when you when you shout that this ought to be the case. And then you can't be annoyed when someone who you sympathise with gets fits held well, I, to the same standards. I also think that it's um, it's very easy for people who have nothing at stake, have no yes, absolutely. faith absolutely. or, you know, have, have no um, sort of um, religious kind of belief system one way or the other. Mm, it's mm. very easy to to get really irate about this sort of stuff on an, on an ideological point of view yeah, um, yeah. without sort of understanding that, you know, potentially – there's a more complex response. And in the meantime, which is why I brought up this AFL.com.au article, the, the the big story, which is what the huh, is going on at the Essendon Football <laughs> yeah, Club, yeah, 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 just yeah. Slips under, it slips under the whole thing. Like, mm. you know, this is – it's a crazy story and, and this guy, Barham, is the one – um, I, like I really like the way this is written. Like later, later on in the piece, it's like Barron's blind obsession with Andrew Thorburn. Uh, you know, I'm just like this is drama. I love this. <laughs> yeah. You know, it didn't. Mm. It, we don't have to jump straight to that mm. um, pitchfork burning. Yeah, you know, yeah. cultural yeah, 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 stuff. Yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, you know, it is something that's really easy to get pulled into. I mean, the Herald Sun. <laughs> I, I love the way they they kind of. Um, Broke the story outing Thorburn's yeah, torch yeah, 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 at church yeah. and then have had about five think pieces in his defence <laughs> since. And it's like, were these all slotted into the schedule? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you have this planned out before yeah, you dropped yeah, that yeah, first story? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> uh, Luke Enrique Gomez is Guardian Australia's social affairs and inequality editor. Uh, before joining The Guardian in 2018, Luke covered federal parliament as the political reporter for The New Daily. Uh, Luke won the Best Short Form Journalism at the Walkley Young Journalist of the Year Awards for his coverage of the RoboDebt scandal, and we are delighted to have him with us. Luke, welcome. Thanks uh, for having me on. Appreciate it. Um, so Four Corners this week produced a report on homelessness, which featured an interview with um, housing, new Housing Minister Julie Collins, which um, a lot of the people a lot of people kind of didn't find fantastically impressive. Um, what have you made of Labor's performance like, so far in in I know it's a very broad term, social mm. affairs, which we'll get into, but mm. in general, what have you kind of taken from the new government? Um, well, I think that before the election, they uh, very much uh, ruled out a lot of things and uh, sort of meant that they sort of can't really say much that would otherwise be, you know, if they were to be doing things that they should be doing, they would be contradicting what they had only just recently said they weren't going to do in the election, right? So, um, I mean, the obvious point there is on, on the job seeker rate. But, mm. I mean, if we talk about housing, um, they do have um, fairly modest, I think, proposals for an increase in social housing and affordable housing. Um, and that's normally what they sort of point to when they're asked about their record on um, well, on social housing, but it more, sort of more broadly on um, social security, welfare policy, what are you doing for the dis- uh, you know disadvantaged people? Usually they point to, to that policy. But, I mean... You know, if you look at if you look at what's required, and there's been report after report. Um, there was a productivity commission report only uh, last week, I think it was, that pointed to the sort of insufficient nature of um, social housing construction and the other policies and how they all fit together. Um, I think it, yeah, they timid. I think is probably mm. the best way to put it. Um, that's not to say that they weren't 
sort of get going, but at the moment, yeah, they, they've uh, been pretty quiet, I would say. I was interested when I watched that um, Four Corners, and I'm interested when you report on these issues, There's there seems to be um, a challenge of... Uh, talking to systemic problems and, you know, quite sort of, um, I don't know, heavy um, sort of p- political p- political systemic and policy issues and then balancing that with very human stories. You know, how do you get that balance right when you when you report on these issues? Because I, I sometimes feel like there's a they can sometimes get a bit sort of poverty porn mm. <laughs> with the human stories without connecting the dots to what the systemic issues are. And then the other side is it can get very dry as well. You know, if you go too far in the policy direction. So how do you how do you strike a balance? Uh, it's a it's a good point um, on the sort of poverty porn question. I guess you know that's something that we're very conscious of at the Guardian, um, and you know. It's, you know, I'm sure that I've written pieces before that some people would have objected to and would have thought that it maybe veered too far in that direction. Um, You know, we're all learning, I guess, how to do it. But my general principle is that, you know, if I'm speaking to somebody who's telling me about their life and the, you know, difficulties that they face, um, it's about making sure that they're comfortable with what's going to be um, in the story, basically. Um... That's not to say that we sugarcoat things and, you know, we don't present things, you know, accurately. We still tell the story as it is, but um, I'm not really interested in kind of uh, getting somebody to tell you about their life and, and, you know, basically do something that is quite scary for a lot of people, Mm. just talk to the media and talk to the media about the fact that, you know, the circumstances are really tough. Mm. Um, I'm not really interested in that person then seeing the story and being like, oh, I'm so ashamed about what yeah. I'm seeing, right? Mm. Um, and it's also not really in my interest to do that because if I did that, um, other people wouldn't want to talk to me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's kind of the approach. And then on the sort of thing about, yeah, it can be really dry. Um, I sort of, this is maybe a bit about the craft of journalism really, yeah. but my approach is kind of um, if we're talking about policy, um I often like to present them as hard news stories rather than kind of softer feature ex- um, yeah. explanatory stories. I sort of present it in the same way that if you read a really sharp um, story on, you know, a political story, um, it's presented as news and, like, the top line tells you this is important. And I try to do that with policy stories about the areas I cover, whether it's, whether it's disability policy or, or welfare policy or housing, because I think often, you know there's kind of this expectation that those sorts of areas need to be treated always in a kind of softer... Mm, more, a more misty-eyed kind of... Yeah. With a sympathy you know, veil or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, soft top, and then we get to the case study halfway through or the other way yeah. round. Yeah. It's kind of very formulaic. And I, I kind of think, you know, a lot of those stories from that I write are really trying to hold the government to account for, you know, failures in policy. Yeah. And I think that if it's about that then they should be presented in that way in the same way that other issues would be um, written that way. So, And I think that generally works for, you know, our readers generally appreciate that. I don't know if it would work at other outlets. We have a guardian of particular readership, I suppose. <laughs> they are both interested in those issues and interested in governments being held to account in a particular way. Yeah. Um, but that's how I do it, I guess, yeah. I mean, you hinted a bit about at this before, but I mean, do you find that there's a bit of a challenge in terms of dealing with people who, yeah, have to, to share with you quite, 
quite intimate details of their lives, often often quite, you know, as you say, their circumstances are quite tough. Mm. And people who are n- not necessarily um, treated all that well in other forms of media. So, you know, the, uh, we were talking about this beforehand, Jess, about, you know, the doll bludgeon narrative and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean... It's, Which it's, is persistent. I don't know why we can't just let that go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's a long-term project, I think. <laughs> yeah, totally. But I suppose, yeah, talk us through a bit about how you... Uh, maybe, and maybe there is no one solution to this, but how you deal with that as a general kind of approach. Um, I would say um, it has gotten easier as I've been in the job for longer. So I've only been the social affairs editor for about a year, but I've been writing about these issues at The Guardian basically since I started four years ago. Um, and as I, I guess, started writing more about them, um, I could point people to work that I'd done, had done previously mm. um, as kind of, you know, well, this is what I do and this is the approach I take. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that everybody is convinced all the time, right? People are rightfully sceptical. Um, well, also, they've probably been let down by a whole lot of people who told them they had their best interests out. Absolutely, right, and... I, you know, like, you should be, you know... Suspicious. Go, well, you should certainly go into it with your eyes wide open and, and yeah, be asking yeah. questions, right? As particularly if you're a, somebody who's going to be um, putting your story in the hands of somebody else, particularly at a, you know, major news outlet. Like, you know, I, I don't blame people for being wary. Um, but, yeah, I just, I guess, having done this sort of reporting for a while... Um, I can point to things I've done. Often people are contacting me because um, they're responding to other stories I've written. Mm. Um, and one, I guess, way I like to go about it is um, if I want to write about an issue, like often, you know, for Four Corners, for example, they'll spend a, a lot of time on a story and, and come back with this really rich piece with, um, you know, lots of different voices and, and a lot of what you, um, there will be a lot that you won't see in the story that they've been, you know, sort of doing the background, right? Mm. A lot of other people they've interviewed and, and the like. Um, sort of print or online is a different medium. I'll often just sort of fly a kite, really, and sort of write a story about something that I think I'd like to pursue. Um, and mm. I get people who want to talk to me because they, uh, you know, that the issue that I've written about affects them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they think I've covered it in a way that ma- makes them feel like, uh, okay, maybe I could speak to that person and, and you know, um, I don't want to say make a difference, but, you know, at least, like, um, get my point of view across, basically. So that's another way. And then I guess the other way, thing is um, I'm dealing with a lot of people who uh, work with the people that I write about, if that makes sense. So if it's, you know, the unemployed or people, yeah. um, disability groups and the like. And so, you know, that's sort of just standard journalism. So sort of, you know, have try and have good relationships with those people so that they can feel comfortable referring people to me to speak to them, I guess. Yeah. Triple We are talking to Luc-Henri Gomez, who's the social affairs editor at The Guardian, and uh, speaking of that, um, Rovo Debt obviously was a huge, complicated, long-going, ongoing, mm, yes. <laughs> long-going, long-term, ongoing story, um, which you covered deeply. How has that been to cover generally as a question? What a question. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's probably, um, we sort of alluded to this earlier, but like 
you know, social affairs in, in general is normally not the area, um, the beat, I suppose, at a newspaper or a media outlet that gets the most prominence, you know, in general. Um, and so a story like Rabbit doesn't come around very often. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, I started covering it in around 2019, 2018, 2019, and my colleague Chris Norse at The Guardian had been rep- reporting on it for that. But it kind of, I think people sort of, Forget that, like, sort of all sort of happened. The the fact that it, you know, we finally realised, or you know, the government accepted it was illegal. That all kind of happened very quickly. And yeah. but before that, you had years of you know more activists, particularly, but also some media outlets, politicians, sort of just sort of saying this doesn't seem right. That this is all potentially problematic. Um, so I think a lot of the media, a lot of the um, community groups, are sort of. Um, I don't know, flying blind a little bit about mm. how to tackle this story. Yeah. And then it's really complicated. Yeah. Right. So, um, really and you're hard. talking to people in deep crisis, you know, being sent these letters from the government saying they owe a huge debt is frightening. Yeah. And so that part of the story is easier to tell um, and, you know, awful. Yeah. But the part of the story that made it a big national story is the fact that also this, you know, really cruel program happened to also be against the law, right? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that part yes. is hard to explain so to hard. people. So yeah. hard, um, And hard to explain in a news story. Yeah. Um, and sort of pulling all those things together was kind of difficult. I'm not sure, like, you know, I think we did some good stories, other people did some good stories. I'm not sure we really quite... All got there, to be honest. We're still trying to figure it out, I think. Well, I think what was interesting about that too is it actually bubbled away for a while before it leapt up in the public consciousness. I don't think people understood. And and perhaps it's, again, that sort of, um, you know, this kind of notion that has been longstanding about people who are complaining (laughs) who are on welfare, you know, are not necessarily doing so with the best intentions or whatever, the squeaky wheel or whatever it might be, there was almost like there was a dismiss... The, the, the story was sort of dismissed initially. Com- completely. Um, you know, I don't use this word all the time, but it, you sort of... The public were kind of gaslit by the government, really. The government sort of basically going around saying, you know, what are you talking about? This is all fine. It's all fine. Um, And then the people that were complaining were some of the people with the least power in the country. Exactly, yeah. It's a recipe for, you know, something that is wrong being swept under the carpet. I think you're completely right. And it sort of speaks to a broader problem, really, which is that, like, you know, there are about 800,000 people on Job Seeker at the moment. There are far more people on welfare benefits in general. That's a quite a big demographic. Huge. Um, and the issues that affect them, you would think, should be news in the way that other cohorts of people, um, you know, their news is sort of taken quite seriously, right? Well, how many um, people work in the mining industry? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so, you know, but it isn't. And, and yeah. I, I, you know... There are good questions to ask about why that is in terms of who works in newsrooms and um, yeah, that yeah. all that sort of stuff. I think that all feeds into why those issues are, you know, are not sort of considered, oh, it's not like serious news, you know. Mm. It's like, oh, you know, every now and then we'll do a like, soft piece about this sort of stuff, but that's it. So. Yeah. And there's also, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing was the rhetoric during the COVID crisis 
when suddenly it was extremely easy for the government to up um, benefits for unemployed people because it was suddenly a new class of people who were who were at risk of losing their jobs. It was the like undeserving unemployed. It was an amazing dynamic, wasn't it? It was suddenly mm. um, when you know the sort of so one of the, I think the thing that seemed to sort of. Uh, frustrate or anger the politicians the most was the lines outside Centrelink like the just the the mere fact that people were lining up outside Centrelink was like um you know this is untenable as a yeah, sort of optics. the optics right yeah. it's like well <laughs> okay like <laughs> oh, yeah. and so that therefore people need more money to to live I guess that yeah, yeah, yeah. probably so applied cost- previously as well like, yeah, yeah. yeah well I find that really interesting that um so many more Australians relied on, you know, JobKeeper during the pandemic to live, to, you know, to keep their houses, to feed their families. But there's such a cognitive dissonance between that and people on job se- on JobSeeker asking to have um, a payment that is just on the poverty line mm. <laughs> as opposed to deeply below the poverty line. Yeah. You know, it's such a – there is some massive psychological kind of barrier – with a lot of this kind of reporting, what draws you to it, Luke? Obviously, you've been doing it for a long time. Mm. It's something that you really set out to report on. I wouldn't say I set out to report it uh, when I started as a journalist. Um, when I was, Charlie mentioned that I worked at the New Daily, um, and I was doing uh, sort of general politics news there. Um, and there were some issues that had sort of started uh, piquing my interest. One of them was the rate of then New Start. Um, mm. Another was uh, Robodet and Centrelink issues. Um, and I definitely remember thinking, oh, this doesn't really get reported on very much. Um, um, the Guardian does stuff on it. Um, I think you probably were doing stuff on it around that time, Charlie, oh, at yeah, Karaki. Yeah. Um, but apart from that, you know, not really too much. And I guess I thought, oh, there's maybe an opportunity here. And then I started working at The Guardian and my boss sort of said, this could be your round. And so it was really just that it was my job, really. <laughs> um, but I love it, yeah. Um, before we move on from RoboDebt, um, for the, the listeners who aren't as across this as, as you are, what's the status of the RoboDebt uh, Royal Commission at this stage? Mm. Where, where, where is that process at? So we've had the opening address from the uh, Royal Commissioner and the uh, Senior Council Assisting, which kind of laid out uh, how this is all going to play out. Um, and one, I guess, the key thing for people interested in politics, I suppose, is that, you know, we do expect that all the big big wigs of the past government will be uh, expected to um, appear. So you, I think you can be pretty sure Scott Morrison will spend some time uh, answering He's questions. He's going to love it. He loves any opportunity to get in front of the cameras. Um, well, you've certainly seen less of him <laughs> since uh, the election. Um, Alan Tudge, I think, will be there as well. So that'll be the sort of... I, not to downplay the seriousness of it, but that would be the sort of theatre part. Yeah, um, the, totally. The next uh, hearings are at the end of this month, um, and I think that's going to run for two, I want to say two weeks, but um, don't quote me on that. Um, and then it's, um, you know, basically they're going to have uh, lived experience um, witnesses as well as people working in the department, former politicians, experts, kind of just seeing how this all happened. I imagine there'll be a part that talks about how this could be avoided, um, which I think is probably... um, The accountability part's really important, but I also hope that it's not uh, the opportunity to kind of get some of the problems at Centrelink sorted for people. I hope that that is not lost. 
It's that it's not just the new government taking an opportunity to give the previous one a good, a good solid game, yeah. however deserved that might be. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be a wasted opportunity for it just to be like, okay, here's what the, you know, here's how this all went wrong, and here's why, you know, Scott Morrison and the Department of Human Services failed in these ways, and that's it, right? Like, well, is that is, is that kind of one of the um, the challenges of a story like Robodet? As you say, it doesn't come around that often that it's mm. as obvious and grotesque an aberration, or, or, or that it maybe gets portrayed as an aberration. It's 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 oh, this this is a the exception to the rule when actually there are very systemic systemic issues that need to be addressed that could be because of this story. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that there's the sort of uh, issues around the public service and ministers and how like that's the sort of political side of it. But there's also like the um, – and you were talking before, Jess, about, you know, people were getting letters for thousands of dollars yeah. that they owed the government. Mm-hmm. And even People na- died, you know, plenty of people. And even now people receive welfare debts uh, where, that, where in, you know, we can have a discussion about how useful it is to go after people in, in general in that sort of context. But, like, they might owe the money, but they're not. it's not explained to them how they owe the yeah. money. The government does not give you very much information when it says, oh, yeah, you owe us two grand. They just And then it's it. on you to find the paperwork, to find that, to, to actually prove them wrong. Otherwise, yeah. the debt stands. So, so even now, like, you know, they're not... They're not doing it illegally, which is obviously a, gra- a good thing. Like, and, and I think, you know, the calculations in general are probably correct for most of the time. I, I don't know that to be the case, but I, I imagine it is. But people still want to know why they owe the money and they should have a right to have all that information so that they can adequately challenge it. Uh, ordinary people cannot just file requests for information, basically FOI requests, mm. um, and filter through all this very complicated um, information in order to, to ch- challenge it. It's it's not a fair process and it should be. Well, especially since, um, you know, the the Centrelink and a lot of departments have become more opaque and less accessible. You know, it's hard. And when you're talking about people who are l- facing enormous challenges day to day anyway, to suddenly have to understand the systems and find the right people to talk to and know the right way to go about it, it's super challenging. And it's, it is just, um, it kind of sucks that our whole welfare system now is set up that way, you know, that you are, not they're not there to help that's that's for sure you will yeah i mean certainly the people i speak to and i spend a lot of time also reading uh um what are called like you would call tribunal decisions uh, um there's a thing called the aat which reviews government yes, decisions yep. like robo debt decisions but other things as well and just the people who are vulnerable who just get you know they have a case and they just have no received no assistance for years and they're yeah. denied things that they're entitled to and then maybe legal aid or community legal centres get involved at some point and then, you know, three years later a tribunal says, oh, yeah, actually you were entitled to that thing yeah. that Centrelink yeah. said you weren't. Um, but a lot of those tribunals were sort of politically stacked well, as well. well just, I was going to say, like, without, without just, wishing to draw, <laughs> you know, go too far, but it is a good example, isn't it, of, yeah. of how social affairs reporting is the intersection of so yeah, many exactly. different disparate issues. Yeah. So now the, the political process of, of quote-unquote, stacking a board like the AAT mm. suddenly becomes pertinent to Centrelink re- uh, recipients, which yeah. it shouldn't be. You know, And also I guess that must be another, another challenge in, 
in reporting on these issues is that you go, oh, wait a minute, before I explain the Centrelink problem, I've got to explain to you why the AAT is the way it is. And Yeah, and that's, what, that's how it can get to back to the point about sort of these policy stories can be very confusing. It's like mm-hmm. there are so many acronyms involved. <laughs> it's, it can be hard to hold people's attention. And so, uh, I, yeah, I guess one way to do that is to sort of, uh, I think if people are viewing it as like, okay, this story is holding the government to account for something, I think that that does make mm-hmm. them a bit more, you know, interested really than sort of the minutiae of how these things work, I guess. I'm interested, um, before you go, in asking about reporting on the housing crisis too because that's obviously something that's really phenomenal and it's just escalated so quickly and it doesn't matter for how many years people have been talking about the um, issues with our property market. Um, Nothing really has changed and now we're in this massive dilemma and there is no policy on the table at the moment (laughs) that is going to fix it potentially. Mm. You know, it's, again, it's such a complex complex issue and I just find it really ironic when you look at a paper, you know, the weekend paper, you've got stories like the, you know, first-person stories that were covered in Four Corners on um, Monday night. I've heard so many of these stories now about people living in tents. Turn the page to the property section and it's (laughs) like, you know, $1.7 million property in West Woodscray or whatever it is, you know, Airbnb, you know, a, a rental property for an investment. And it's like, again, this sort of massive disconnect, Mm. you know, what, where are you in terms of reporting on the housing market? Like, how do you see that, that developing? So, um, just think about how I'm going to answer that. I mean, I, it's a really interesting point that, um, there is this disconnect between, uh, real estate and property Mm. reporting and, uh, sort of reporting on the economy and on uh, tax policy yep. and then maybe social affairs reporting on, like, people who are, you know, experiencing homelessness. It's or, like you're or only supposed to tell the human story. Yeah. They're but kind it's of... so caught up in those stories. Um, so, I actually, I'll give a shout-out to my colleague, Stephanie Convery, who's uh, the inequality reporter at The Guardian. She yep. covers more on um, sort of housing policy. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, the general principle is that we try to combine all of these factors together, right? Um, So Steph, for example, um, when writing about the rental crisis has had a big focus on uh, tenants' rights. Yes, Um, her reporting's been great. Yeah, state government um, policy or lack of policy on tenants' rights in various jurisdictions, um, it's all related, right? Yeah. Like when tenants don't have the power to, uh, you know, when they are at the whims of their their landlords... uh, they have less power and it, it, it works against them. And yeah. you've got people clamouring now for, for homes in the rental crisis um, and that's how these sorts of situations, like the ones you saw in Four Corners, can. that's part of the story. Tax policy again, you know? Like, well, tax policy, but then also um, there's no protections for renters. Things like Steph did some uh, great pieces on, what's it called, when you can just kick and kick... A no grounds eviction. Yeah, no yeah. grounds evictions. It's still wild. legal. You can put up the rent by 40% mm. in a mould-filled home, mm. and that's legal. I, I just, you know, that in itself is extraordinary. So, again, it's that intersection of, you know, um, policy lack of legislative protection for renters um, and this crazy property market. And the thing that I'm interested to know about that, I don't know if you've ever sort of 
got into the Canberra zone. But the, <laughs> when you always think hear about, you know, um, in Canberra, there's always like um, lobbyists roaming the corridors of Parliament, <laughs> and there's lobbyists for the for developers, there's lobbyists for bankers, there's mm. lobbyists for you know all for economists, there's lobbyists for um, fossil fuel, um, you know, corporations. Who is lobbying for? The people who are, you know, the Australians who are most, have the most to lose in this situation we find ourselves in, you know? Uh, well, I mean, there are groups, but they're not the they're not in the in crowd. I don't think in the yeah. house. Yeah, yeah I, so I did spend some time. Um, I was sort of fly in, fly out when I was the um, political reporter at the New Daily in Parliament, and yeah, so um, you know functions on Tuesdays and Thursday, Wednesday nights um, after or while Parliament was sitting. You go get free booze from various uh, lobby groups and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, the, the, those groups have more political power than um, both the, um, shall we say, social service groups like ACOS and um, uh, homelessness and housing organisations and then also the more activist type groups who are basically not in the picture when it comes to having conversations with government, more or less. Um, I think the Labor government is more interested in talking to ACOS or groups like that than the, the Liberal government was, who mm. basically paid them absolutely no attention. So not to say that, um, you know, not to give uh, Labor off the hook, but, like, it does make some difference who yeah. is in the picture who is in the conversation because it changes the way that the political debate sort of goes. And so, like, you know, the fact that if ACOS says something, the Labor government takes it somewhat seriously, at least even if it doesn't necessarily respond with the policy mm. right there and then, at least it, it does change the dynamic, I think. Mm. And I do think we have seen that since the election. Slightly promising words to end on, unless you have something else, Charlie. That no, you have no, to no. Ask let's, let's 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 cut off while we're on a, on a mildly positive note. Which which is why your reporting is so important, and you know that um, every publication needs to really focus on it now because there's just more and more divide. I think. I think it would be uh, nice to see. Um, I mean, at least our story. You know, not to be too inside baseball, but our stories. Um, are well read, like, mm. you know, in terms of uh, readership numbers across different things that we do at The Guardian, like, people do read them. Um, and I think, um, you know, I think other outlets, you know, other outlets do cover what we do, but maybe just not as much as we do. And yeah. I think it would be good if they did. Yeah. We've been talking to uh, Luke Henri Gomez, who is the social affairs editor at The Guardian. <laughs> Three Triple R FM. Um, okay, so every now and then, uh, as we've reported often on this show, there's just some innocuous little op-ed somewhere in some corner of the deep dark corner of the publishing world that just um, takes off and then ping pongs its way around. Um, I think I think the the word in the business, Charlie, is it goes viral. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there have been a couple of Australian ones. I think I remember that um, there was one about that woman who um, broke up with her husband for some guy she met on. Oh God, yes, no, I, yes, I, I vaguely remember that one. It was we, we definitely talked about it on the show. And it, it's the kind of article that seems really innocuous, but it gives people big feelings and opinions. <laughs> and the one I read this week was pretty funny. It's um, it appeared in the Omaha 
World Herald, not a publication I've had need to read previously. However, here we are. And the headline is, well, it's it's in a section called Living with Children, mm. <laughs> which is promising already. The headline, Living with Children, You Shouldn't High-Five a Child. And I believe this is uh, a column from a, a psychologist. And I'm going to read you the opening paragraphs because that's what I was lost in when I, um, <laughs> when I completely missed the end of the music track. Uh, and <clears throat> it starts with, <laughs> lots of R's, G's and H's. Will you please just stop doing that, please? Every time I see it, I want to scream and I'm not an emotionally hyperactive person. I'm talking about the adults high-fiving children. And yes, I'm about to reveal that I'm the Grinch, or so it would seem. Knowing my stance on the subject, a parent recently asked, what's wrong with adults high-fiving children, John? I recognise a rhetorical question when I hear one. The fact that someone even has to ask that question is proof <laughs> we are lost in Dante's dark wood when it comes to children and their upbringing. Uh, okay, so we're five, four paragraphs in. <laughs> and what is going on? John, I, the, the, he's very, very emotional about this. It's great. I mean, there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot I love. Um, I really like it when... Uh, when someone responds to a objectively innocuous question, like what's wrong with high-fiving children, and they start their answer with, the fact that you even have to ask that. <laughs> and, I mean, it goes on. Anyway, he has an issue. Um, well, I'll read on. High-five is a gesture of familiarity to be exchanged between equals. I've traded the palm slap with adult <laughs> friends. Dude, give me five. I can be and am as cool as the next the next adult, that is. <laughs> uh, he, and he goes on to obviously to specify the high five is not capital capital letters not appropriate between a doctor and a patient, mm -hmm. judge and a defendant, potus and a person who is not old enough to vote. A parent and a child, a grandparent and a grandson. He rejected his grandson's high five. He left him hanging and had to um, explain to his son that he would never high five his grandchild. I mean, so the, the, oh, it's just a piece of artwork, a piece of art. Yeah, yeah. It turns out he, uh, I, I, I looked up Rosemond. Um, John. John Rosemond, the, yeah. the author of this wonderful piece. And I kind of wish I hadn't because it turns out that <laughs> this he's... This is not his bad first swerve it's, into it's, the bad, it's, take, well, a, bad a takes. very, very long way from his worst take. Um, lots of terrible <laughs> takes about, you know, ADHD not being a real thing. And um, Thanks, John. Uh, and, I, I, you know, uh, corporal <sighs> punishment. Sorry, corporal punishment? Yeah. Yeah, corporal punishment for children. And being okay. Being being pretty much okay. Um, so you can't hit them on the palm, but you can but, slap but, but them upside it, yeah, the head. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, well, I mean, that's, you know, that's that's a, a maintenance of the dynamic. I mean, my, uh, <laughs> my, my response to this was very confused because for mine, and, uh, you know, I did... <laughs> I did think probably too long about this. I'll, I'll say John did. John did um, worked his way into your, your into your mind a little bit. He really did. And what's that saying that they use on the internet about you um, living rent free? Yeah, John lived rent free in my head for a good text, three text messages to you, in fact, Charlie. Um, <laughs> where I was like, isn't the only time you high five is between an adult and a child, like do adults still high five each other? I'm sure this is. I'm yeah. sure John's got it completely the wrong way around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, so he he 
he is 74, so maybe his view on, on what cool adults do. I mean, he does a gimme five dude, <laughs> like it's 1992. And he says, I can be cool like the next adult, with an, but this but is your the, yeah, yeah. bastion of cool, is high-fiving. Yeah, something that I think has only ever been done between children or sports people was the other one where I'm like, that's the other place where it's sort of... Well, even when you said that, Charlie, I was you, like, really? You were skeptical. I, yeah, yeah, I just think even between sports people, it's just a bit lame. I mean, like, I, I'm still... I'm two, As two I, I adults. Just, this is a real thing of, like, showing my own age is that my you first You high-five your girlfriend all the time, don't you? <laughs> no, I was just thinking about... Um... Great dinner, babe. <laughs> I mean, that... that, like that. that... <laughs> We, we are pretty unbearable. That, that might well have happened. Um, no, but I was going to say that my first thought was like, when the sports thing was like the West Indian cricket team of the 90s, who I thought were the peak of, of all that was cool when I was 12, um, they high-fived a lot when things were going well. So That I, was the 90s. That was, like yeah. this article is written this yes, week. Yes, exactly. So I think my even my view on, on maybe, maybe beyond, yes, beyond childhood, you shouldn't have any opinion on high-fives whatsoever. And then John um, finishes his article um, trying to um, put some pop psychology into it, talking about boundaries in relationships being essential to their proper functioning. I think he's mistaken boundaries with just misery. Um, And he says children should know their place, adults should know their place. The more adults and children co-mingle as if they are equals, the more problematic become their relationships. I mean, that is a very... That's a very thing that you would expect a seventy-four-year-old to say. I, I, I suppose that's the thing is the, is the question why is he's, he asks what, why should a child obey an adult who fi- high fives him? It's a. I've got to say, my children are pretty disobedient. Is it because of all the high fives? I'm thinking maybe. Yeah, I high five my three-year-old all the time. It's like, did you wipe your ass after you pooed? Yes. High five. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like that's it's a common yeah well that's your congratulatory method for a three year old yeah and uh, and that is why your three year old does not respect you and will never respect an authority figure ever again shit I've really (laughs) fucked this parenting thing (laughs) anyway Um, that's enough about John I think John has occupied far too much of our time for again a terrible man with awful takes well Um, he's just got more clicks to the Omaha World Herald than they've is that what it was called again. I've just lost uh, Omaha, yeah, World Herald than they've ever had previously. I think so. I think John's column is safe for another few years. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, um, we're, we're contributing to the to the um, deterioration in or the prolifera- pl- proliferation of bad takes on the, yeah, on the internet. Yeah, we, we complain about them, but then we can't Here get enough of them. Yeah. Um, the, the other thought that, that um, kind of uh, the other news story that I found quite interesting. This week was the uh, the canary, which is a, a, a sort of relatively small, um, very very hard left news outlet that formed in about 2015 in the UK. Uh-huh. Um, what's really interesting is that this week they announced that they had had um, like a, a genuine workers' revolution and they had expelled oh, wow. the bosses. <laughs> and we're now working as a workers' cooperative. Oh my god, uh, which is pretty interesting. So I mean, like, there's a, there's a few I things. Love to... So so start back at the beginning. So they formed in did you say 2015? Yeah, they started in 2015, and and they kind of in that time. Uh, I'm not an expert on their output, but but I sort of was dimly aware of them for a while. They kind of got a little bit of a um, a reputation of kind of trying to be a hard left version and a genuinely like partisan hard left 
kind of uh, outlet, but but with the tone and they weren't attached to any kind of educational organization or anything like that no 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 Um, very independent yeah okay um they were they were uh yeah formed by a by a a a couple um yeah who sort of they and they they kind of gained the reputation as as sort of yeah a bit of a kind of like left-wing response to a lot of the kind of really crazed tabloids in the uk and and using from from what i understand using the same sort of hyperbole the same sort of slightly dodgy reporting in some cases the same kind of partisan skewed reporting yeah. that you would expect from from um kind of a, a more right-wing tabloid so they weren't necessarily like the most squeaky clean uh sort of outlet but it was interesting they were considered a very kind of uh progressive and so the big thing that they are doing now is the all the news stories in this week not all the news stories but a big chunk of them have been the the new workers cooperative investigation into their own workplace and the kind of uh, <laughs> the, the bloodletting. So all the talk of like the left wing, green left bias that the that gets talked about in like the ABC or, or the Guardian or Crikey. It's like, yeah, but none you of those places on the do a, a genuine workers' <laughs> revolution. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favorite podcast platform, and you can follow us on Twitter at Nadge Samble, at Lily Juice, and at the Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this. <laughs>